0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Audible, the world's leading provider of digital audiobooks. Do you want a free audiobook with a free 30-day trial? Just go to audibletrial.com slash that's audibletrial.com slash O-T-H-E-R-P-E-O-P-L-E Audiobooks are books you can listen to Audible has hundreds of thousands of titles in every genre imaginable It's a great way to be productive while you're in your car while you're walking while you are completely inert uh, audibletrial.com slash other people These are books You can listen to them Go and get one. Oh my God
1: Brad Listy, Just one person at just one
0: time. Right? Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is happening wherever you are happening. This is me in a room trying to think of something to say into a microphone. How are you today? I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. Uh, I appreciate you tuning in. My guest is David Connerly Nam. He has a debut novel out on $2 Radio, uh, one of this country's finest independent presses. And uh, the book is called Ancient Oceans of central Kentucky. And, uh, you know, I guess that means that there once were oceans where central Kentucky now exists. Uh, I wouldn't doubt it. Uh, I was just in Colorado and I was up in the mountains and, uh, we went on a little tour and, uh, our tour guide. Cause I do that sort of thing. <laughs> I'll go on a tour. I don't care. I'll ride in one of those, uh, open air buses around a city. I like that. So anyway, I went on a tour and uh, one of the things that was pointed out to us is that the uh, Rocky Mountains used to be underwater. Which is nice to uh, remember. You know, it's like one of those things where like every once in a while I will uh, pause and think to myself, uh, dinosaurs. Like you ever do that? It's worth doing, Uh, you know, like this, this place is a lot stranger than we give it credit for. Uh, you know, however many billions of years ago, this planet was overrun with uh, giant vicious lizards or some of them were uh vicious. I feel like brontosauri were sort of nice. They just chewed on leaves or whatever, but you know what I'm saying? Lizards. We don't know what's going on here. We have no idea. We're just a blip, you know? So, uh, that's happening. What else is happening? That Labor Day's over with the holiday. You know, the summer holiday is over with that, that, you know, the second half of August when everybody sorts of, you know, sort of goes on autopilot and sleepwalks and it's hot. What do they call it? The dog days of summer. I'm glad that's over. I don't love the summer in Los Angeles. I've probably mentioned that, you know, like winter, fall, winter, spring. Great to be in the desert, summer in the desert. Not as great. Plus, in, you know, in LA, uh, the tourists, the smog, the traffic, I'm just, you know, I don't like the heat. What I want is a uh, 65 to 75 degrees, perfectly sunny with a light breeze. Always. I don't want any seasons. I don't care about leaves. I just want perfection. Always. <laughs> sort of a baby about it. So it's, you know, I, I, I tried to participate because I do think it's good to sort of uh, rest. You know, I think that's an undervalued uh, virtue in our uh, society, particularly here in the States, I think it's good to take some time off. I think it's actually uh, better for you, it, you know, work-wise. It makes you smarter. If you give your brain a rest, give your body a little bit of a rest. But, uh, you know, I did that. I tried to participate, and now I feel antsy. And I, I just want to uh, I want to be done with summer. I want to start getting shit done. Which is probably a good sign. I guess that means the... Uh, you know, the little uh, rest did its trick. So uh, it's good to be with you. It's good to be back in the swing of things. I've got some uh, great shows coming up, and I hope you enjoy uh, today's edition. Uh, I figure we should just get started with it. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow David Connerly-Nam, as I mentioned, is the guest. His debut novel, Ancient Oceans of Central Kentucky, is available now from $2 Radio. It took him 15 years to write the book, and uh, he and I are going to talk about that, uh, among other things. So here he is. This is David Connerly-Nam, and his novel, once again, is called Ancient Oceans of Central Kentucky.
1: If you're asking, did I enjoy growing up in Kentucky... I don't know because I don't know necessarily what it would have been like to grow up somewhere else. Um, I don't remember having any particular complaint about Kentucky as a kid. Um, and I remember when I was in high school, a lot of my classmates really wanting to get out of town and go somewhere else. And I I don't ever remember having, having that. Obviously, I went to college then in the same town that I'd grown up in. Um, it's a very nice town. I liked it. Um, well, if you're asking me a, if no, I enjoyed growing up, that's a whole different question.
0: <laughs> well, no, but you know, you, you mentioned it. I mean, I think sometimes people grow up in, uh, like I grew up in the Midwest and, uh, in Indiana just up the road and I wanted to get out, you know, or at least it occurred to me shortly before I went to college. It suddenly, like I, I realized that I needed to get out and other people, uh, you know, I had friends who wanted to get out from the time they were like in junior high school. So, uh, but you didn't have that you like you know you seem to be content, but yet you wound up in Virginia uh, I'm assuming that's a professional thing or was it did you get the itch to check out other places after you got out of college at center uh,
1: no it was it mostly mostly professional so after I graduated um, my wife and I though at the time my girlfriend uh, moved to Louisville for a few years uh, that's where she's from and then we moved to Chapel Hill North Carolina when she got into graduate school lived there for quite a while and then when she finished graduate school she got a job teaching up here and that's what brought us to Virginia
0: and you're, a la- so it's and, been, you're and you're in you're, you practice law correct
1: I'm a lawyer yes okay what kind of lawyer I am a civil litigator um, which means I go to court and have trials, at, but I don't practice criminal law. I have breach of contract cases and uh, estate state uh, will contests and
0: that sort of thing. But you do see the inside of a courtroom, because I know a lot of, you know, there are, there are different kinds of lawyers. Like, I mean, I yeah. think everybody always imagines, like, the, you know, the lawyer in the courtroom arguing the case before a jury, but um, that's not always the way that it goes, but for you it is.
1: Right. Right, and that that i I am the inside of the courtroom argue a case in front of a jury kind of lawyer
0: do you like it and and the reason I ask because I think that there you know there are uh, uh, a goodly a goodly number of writers who who wind up uh, with law degrees, and I think that there's some symbiosis between the two paths because you know it, you know practicing law and studying law there's lots of reading and lots of writing and um, you know, you, you think of like a, a really popular example, like John Grisham, you know, uh, practicing law and then turning to fiction. Like it's not necessarily like the farthest leap that you could make professionally. Um, but I have heard, you know, you, I, I have heard from several friends over the years, um, you know, that they practice law and they don't necessarily love it. Uh, but do you, do you really enjoy the, the work?
1: I do. I, I, I really enjoy it. It's, it's stressful. Uh, I'm not going to pretend like it, it's not stressful. I think that there are certain uh, types of law you can practice that are perhaps less stressful. Um, if I were an estate planning attorney, maybe that would be a little less stressful. Um, but uh, in general, yeah, I love it. And I and I think you're exactly correct. They're very closely related because obviously the law uh, in its most sort of elemental terms is about – language. It's about uh, creating laws and interpreting laws in the same way that we create stories and we interpret stories. Um, And especially as a litigator, my job is to meet with a client and hear their story and try and figure out um, the parts of their story that are important for them legally or the parts that aren't important and to sometimes put together chronologies that are not always presented to me in the most, uh, orderly fashion. And then to take that and fashion it into something that is understandable, either to a jury or a judge, um, or sometimes just the person that they have the problem with. Um, so there's, I, I think that there's actually a,
0: you just described writing fiction right there.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's, it, it, I think there's a, they're, they're intimately related. And um, I teach as well on the side, just one class a semester here at the university. And one of the classes I teach is, is law and literature. And I tell my students, um, I don't teach it in the English department. I teach it in the Justice Studies department. So I have students who are great students, but sometimes they're, you know, uh, literature is not necessarily their first love but uh I think that I explained it to him in the same way that if this is something you're interested in, either being a lawyer or say going into law enforcement or going into some sort of like non profit justice work, you're going to be hearing people's stories and you're going to have to figure out which re- narrators are reliable and which narrators aren't reliable, and you're going to have to be good at crafting a narrative for that either for a judge and jury or for donors to your nonprofit or to a Commonwealth attorney or a prosecutor and so on and so forth. But yeah, I think, I think that they're, the law and literature are uh, ex- extremely related and occasionally someone will, uh, an attorney will seem surprised when they find out that um, I write or that, I love to read, and um, it always seems strange to me because it seems like they go together so well.
0: Well, uh, yeah, and I, you know, I was going to say I, I would add politics to that, which I don't know if is necessarily the most popular idea because it's not the most popular profession. <laughs> um, it's, well, it's often reviled. Not,
1: not but... like being an attorney, which is yeah, right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you know, I think politics is is, is several notches below in terms of popularity, and uh, at least these days. And but I always it always strikes me. Uh, when I'm watching a bad politician operate, or if I'm watching a really skilled person uh, do it, they're, like they're masterful with language, it's it's definitely uh, you know, it's about language primarily. It seems to me.
1: I, I I I that's I agree with that also. I mean, and again, you know, what's the difference between a good politician and a and a bad politician? The bad politician, you can tell they're telling you a story. Um, a good politician. You hear and you think, wow, I'm, I feel really compelled and moved by that, and that's made me kind of see my life differently, and I now want to go out and do something. Um, and the good politician and the bad politician, and I and maybe don't mean morally, but just good at their job versus bad at their job, I've um, done the same thing. They've, they're trying to give you that feeling, make you feel motivated either to vote for them or to create some sort of social change one way or the other. Um, but it, it's similar to being a good writer or a bad writer. You know, what makes a bad writer is you, you constantly thinking I am, I'm reading this story. This person is writing for me and I can see the seams and a good writer is just better at hiding the seams, I guess.
0: Right. Exactly. So, and then, and likewise for an attorney, you I'm sure when you're addressing a jury, it's the same thing, you know, trying to present your case.
1: Yes, it, it it is, and it's especially uh, as an attorney. Sometimes, it, it, especially if you're doing it, if you're presenting the the case to to a jury, it, you're if if the case in say involves a lot of somewhat esoteric federal re- regulation, how do you take that and present it in a interesting, compelling way? Simple, uh,
0: like in a way people can actually understand. <laughs>
1: Yeah, in a way that, in a you know, boiling it down in a way that is relatable to someone who has not ever had to spend much time, say, thinking about the Employee Retirement Savings Income Act,
0: (laughs) which uh, I think constitutes like what ninety nine point nine percent of the population.
1: That and ninety nine point nine percent of the attorneys as well. Yeah. Right. So, okay. So, you know, I'm always fascinated when
0: I talk to writers about what they do uh, to support themselves because most of, you know, most people out there who are writing books, unless they achieve uh, an unlikely level of uh, success, you know, uh, at least statistically speaking, they have to find some other way to do it. And a lot of people teach, you know, you teach at least, you know, on the side, but you're primarily earning your bread as a, as an attorney. Which seems like uh, you know, a nicer way to make a living in terms of compensation because teaching can be um, – you know, money can be scarce there, especially if you're adjuncting. But I also, it also seems like if you're an attorney that the demands of the job time-wise might be more severe and could preclude you from having the necessary time to write. So how do you work all of that out?
1: It, it does take a lot of time. Now, I will say first off that I'm I'm lucky in that I working in a smaller town um, at a smaller firm. I'm not uh, to return to John Grisham. I'm I'm not in the the firm <laughs> where there's an expectation that I show up at six in the morning and that I'm still there at nine at night.
0: And what's the what's um, the what's the town and the firm
1: again? <laughs> uh, the town is Harrisonburg, Virginia. Okay, yeah, um, and so it's it's the county seat there. It, it's a, actually a really wonderful legal community um, here. There are a lot of really nice attorneys. It's at, at least in our town. It's very much the opposite of the stereotype of what you would imagine uh, with attorneys. Um, a lot of great people, really easy to deal with. There's a lot it's done just on a handshake. Um, I trust people. Uh, it's, it's a really nice place to practice law. Um, but go, getting back to your question about the time, so, but I am obviously still busy and work a lot. Um, but I just try to be diligent with my evenings and weekends and, uh, yeah. So, what is like? What is, your,
0: what is your writing schedule look like? I mean, you know, you're working nine to five. You're teaching this class, uh, this one class a semester, and then uh, you say nights and weekends. So, is that every night? You come home from work, you eat dinner, and then you sit down.
1: Uh, pretty much. Um, I'll say that since um, since uh, two dollar radio uh, agreed to publish ancient oceans of central Kentucky, I've had I've, I've maybe relaxed a little bit, taking a little bit of a break, but my usual writing process is I get up in the morning, um, between the time that I get up and I come to work. Um, I used to walk to work every day. Um, I've just moved and I don't do that anymore, but usually what I would do is on my walk into work, if I am thinking about writing, which is most of the time I would, maybe if I have an idea, I come in, I write it down first thing, just so I don't forget it, spend my day working, um, then in the afternoon come home, eat dinner with my wife real quick, um, and then spend the rest of the evening uh, writing more or editing things that I've written, um, sort of maybe putting together some of the little things that I would write in the mornings um, into something larger. And then on weekends I get up and uh, often would go out someplace to write. I off, I spent a lot of time uh, writing in the mall. Uh, that was my preferred place to write for like, a like, long time. Like,
0: like what, the food court? Like where are you writing in the mall?
1: Uh, it, either in the food court or in the uh, coffee shop in the Books-A-Million, <laughs> in okay. the mall.
0: Yeah, that makes, um, that makes sense.
1: And that's where I studied for the bar exam. It's a, it's a you know, quiet little mall, especially certain times of the day. There's just not many... People in there and I like getting out of the house and I like being out someplace around other people so you can see people and listen to people and
0: have, not be any, totally secluded. Do you have any kids? No. Okay I was gonna say because you were probably helps yeah it's a writing say. schedule. <laughs> yeah well yeah exactly you have more time but um, so okay so you, you're working on this book and then how did you wind up with two dollar radio?
1: Um, well so what I did when I finished the book finally um, I picked uh, six or seven, uh, independent publishers that I liked the books of and just sent the manuscript to them, uh, by email or through whatever online submission system they had. Um, I don't have an agent and I was impatient after all the years of writing. So I thought, well, I'm going to, Pick the places that I would like to have publish it. Um, since I, since we live in an era where a lot of places you can just send a submission into a publisher, um, and I was extremely fortunate that uh, they looked at my submission because I, I can only imagine that the publishers get a ton of them and that they were interested enough to publish it.
0: So in, and it, uh, how long was the turnaround?
1: Probably about four months. Well, that's,
0: not too, that's, that's actually not too terribly bad for just like drop, no, dropping it, was, it in their
1: inbox. Yeah, I, it's it. I mean, it took me fifteen years to write the book, but uh, and I thought, oh well, I've now I've written it, and now I have years of trying to get someone to pay attention to it ahead of me. And actually, the thing that I thought would be the hardest part, just sort of. Happened quickly. So, uh,
0: and, and may I ask how old you are? Fifteen years. So you've been working on this since how
1: old? I, I'm. I am thirty nine. Okay. I'll be. I'll be forty in April. Um, so I guess I'm thirty nine and a half. If we still count half birthdays, <laughs> thirty nine. Of course we do. Um, uh, so I started working on it in some fashion, just about a year or so after graduating from college. Um, had a lot of sort of fits and starts and stops at the outset in the first few years, um, then kind of got on a roll a little bit around 2004, 2003, 2004. Um, and then I went to law school, and that I, – I won't say things – my writing really slowed down much, um, but I had to balance it with being in school. Um, and then after my last year of law school, I then really kind of – Dug back in again and tried to finish something.
0: Okay, so and and it's I mean, so it sounds like you've been harboring literary ambitions uh, for most of your adult life. So, like, when did you get the bug? Is this something that dates back um, to childhood, or is I mean, like, uh, how did you get into it?
1: Well, I think I, as seriously as a uh, seriously probably my freshman year of high school though I think the joy of telling stories is something that I've had for most of my life. Um, I always enjoyed telling funny stories or scary stories or serious stories when I was a kid, Um, and I think probably by the time I got to high school my freshman year, um, I was serious about trying to uh, be a writer as serious as you can be about anything at 14. Um, or at least emulate. I decided that I really wanted to be Stephen King, um, or, uh, some of the other writers that I liked uh, then. So that's probably when I started regularly on my own without someone telling me to do it or assigning the work to me, um, when I started writing.
0: Okay. And so, um, do you know, when you went to, uh, to college, like as an undergraduate, uh, what did you study?
1: I was an English major.
0: Oh, you were. Okay. So you were always on yeah. this track. And then did your folks, I mean, do you, do you, either of your folks have any kind of literary bearing?
1: Uh, no, not, not that I'm aware of. My, my father's retired now, but both my father and my mother, uh, are were in education are in education um my stepfather was in education um my stepmother's an artist um so there was always a lot of maybe not none of them were writers but there was a lot of sort of encouragement towards education and reading they bought me a lot of books when i was a child my one of my uncles reads a lot uh he always encouraged me uh to read so it was a. I didn't get, uh, I didn't go camping. We didn't <laughs> play ball um, or go fishing. But for my birthday, they would get me books, and we would read, and there was plenty of time to read. So that.
0: Well, and I was going to say too. You mentioned Stephen King earlier, and like, as a, I feel like a lot of adolescent boys, I was this way. Like, we get really into like the Macabre, and ho- I was really into horror movies and. I remember I had like, oh, yeah. a, like a two or three year span in junior high where like that's all I wanted to watch. And I would read, you know, scary books and whatnot. And, um, you know, the macabre has found its way into your work. Like, do you feel like, um, you know, do you feel like the place that you grew up, uh, you know, has a strong element of that? Like, did you sense that growing up or is this something that you just kind of, um, I don't know, is, is it is it less... Uh, realist than that? Is it more just something you kind of plucked from the air and imagined and put into
1: your fiction? Uh, Well, I think I can answer that a couple different ways. First, um, probably the, I was the same way and and still am the same way. Um, Part of that uh, is From the fact that my childhood and growing up in central Kentucky is actually the exact opposite of what you might expect from the book. Uh, It's a very plain. It's very ordinary. It's the most ordinary childhood any human being could possibly have in many ways.
0: Um, Nothing like nothing. You didn't experience any like really difficult periods or anything really bad happen or anything like that.
1: No, no. My parents got divorced, but that was a very '80s thing. Um, but other than that, no. And so it was uh, partially a, a reaction to kind of the dullness of childhood that it, it's more interesting. When I was really young, I loved reading scary stories to tell in the dark. And especially I was especially drawn to any sort of like folk tale or real ghost story, um, any kind of book that I could find about UFOs or Bigfoots or haunted English manners. I loved all of those because they sort of alleviated some of the boredom of just a standard run-of-the-mill small town childhood. Um, So that's part of it. It was a reaction to kind of a um, very ordinary childhood. And I think, too, because of the time that I grew up, um, born in 1975, growing up in the 80s, growing up in Danville, Kentucky in the middle of nowhere in Kentucky is really very similar to growing up anywhere else because of the influence of television. Um, I think probably at that point, everybody kind of had the same childhood. I mean, maybe we called soft drinks, different things, um, but we all watched the same television shows. So our collective memory of childhood is, largely influenced by the same images of childhood. Yeah. Um, but then the, but, but the, but the nice thing then about, about my childhood in that is that I had, um, I had parents, my parents who are wonderful people and I love dearly did, were a little bit macabre themselves. Um, just as parents. What do you mean? Well, my father loved to scare us, um, He loved, to. we watched a lot of B-grade horror and science fiction movies sort of on whatever Sunday double feature on the TV uh, there was. Um, So there was a lot of that growing up. Uh, A lot of, he would buy us books on mythology and mummies and all of that. Um, And my mother was a little the same too. I mean, it was the 80s, we were all worried about, we're all going to be kidnapped and (laughs) terrible things are happening out there. So it was kind of a time where even though my childhood and the town I grew up in wasn't nothing really weird or strange or terrible happened. Um, our, my parents, I'm sure a lot of people's parents kind of always were reminding us of those, that those sort of things could happen. And then, yeah, so that probably had a, had a big influence. Um, I Probably saw Psycho when I was a little bit too young to watch Psycho, um, and that was that Norman Bates's mother then became sort of the family. If you don't behave, Norman's mother will come and, you know, get you. Kind of
0: that was like a family thing. Your parents would tell you
1: that was a, that was a you know that was a family thing. And
0: so I want uh, I want to stop though because this is something that's of interest to me now. I guess it maybe more particularly so because I'm a parent. But when it comes to um, horror like let's just use this as an example there are others that you can okay. point to but like uh, you know like what you watch like what you ingest period in terms of media whether it's magazines books movies music you name it um, you know ha- that does have an impact and I remember as a kid scoffing at adults in my world who would try to tell me that I couldn't watch something I really hated that and then I, there are also like the extreme adults Uh, in certain quarters of my life, you know, at the fringes who were like, you know, no television and kumbaya, like, you know, their kids could only read the Bible or whatever. And that's like just a couple of examples for uh, a brief period of time. But uh, I thought that was absurd, you know, all all the way across the, you know, the board. But as I get older, um, I don't know what it is, but I think like there was a period in my life where I watched too much cable news. And it wound up making me like anxious. I could feel like the actual, like psychological, emotional effects of that. And if I watch now, like if I watch uh, something scary before I go to bed at night or something violent, or I watch the news, I have trouble sleeping. uh, And I think I start to think to myself, like, maybe there's something to this, like what we ingest in that way has something to say about our well-being. So on the other side of the coin. You know, if you're dealing with horror fiction or horror movies or, you know, something that's like, you know, really uh, heavily influenced by the macabre or a sense of the macabre, um, you know, what's the, what's the upside of that? You know, what is the upside of reading something, uh, for example, that just scares the shit out of you and makes you feel like uh, uneasy?
1: <laughs> well, I, I mean, I, I think the upside for me, it's a very complicated question. I can say that for me as, as a child... the 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 childhood David, um, what those stories gave me were a sense that there was something more to life than I saw. That and and let let me pair the horror with something else. I also read a lot of really sentimental books, Um, either that kind of nineteen. 40s and 50s children, like run away from home and find a pony and, you know, tame the pony and then <laughs> what you track black, down black, robbers. Is it like Black Beauty or something? That, that kind of thing. And then the soup books, um, and I've, I've forgotten who wrote them, but there were these series of books about, set in like Vermont in the 1930s about a boy and his best friend, Soup, and they would get into adventures and ride in wagons and you know, shoot BB guns and win the spelling bee. Um, and I didn't really have a lot of friends as a child. You didn't? And so, no. And so, uh, I had some friends, but not a whole vast array of friends. And we didn't have adventures and we never tamed a pony and we didn't find any treasure or anything. You didn't,
0: you didn't go go camping? Like, yeah. What did you and your friends do? You got it sounds like you were kind of, you were an introverted child. I,
1: I well, I don't know if I would say introverted because I, I enjoyed, attention. Um, but I wasn't, I was probably an obnoxious child. Um,
0: I feel like we should get your parents on the phone to verify this.
1: (laughs) Well, uh, let's, let's, let's just, let's just assume for the second, for a a second that I might have been obnoxious (laughs) as a child. Okay. (laughs) And that I might still be a little obnoxious. Um, but, but so the, the, the question about the horror. So, The horror and then all the sentimental, like, mid-century boys' adventures kind of stuff, it it came from the same place. It came from feeling bored, not having anything to do, um, maybe not necessarily always having people to play with. There were other kids on my street, but most of them were much older than I was, um, or I was scared of them. Um, And I'm the oldest of four, so I did have siblings, but they were all three or four years younger than me. Um, So reading books, you know, reading about ghosts or reading about children having great adventures sort of comforted me and added a dimension to my life that there was something else. There was something more. Like I look out my window and I just see a backyard and so what? What's so exciting about a backyard? But reading these books that I would get from the library and thinking, Ooh, but what if, What if there's a haunted house? What does that mean for my life? Or (laughs) what if there is someone out, I'm going to meet some cool kid who just moved to town who's going to take me on adventures? Or I was also an extremely romantic child. And so there was always a, what if I meet, you know, this perfect, beautiful girl and, you know, we fall in love and get married. And I had my children named when I was in elementary school. Like I was just certain, like... All of these exciting things were going to happen to me um and they and they didn't so it's it's not that <laughs> damn <laughs> no i mean at the, not in childhood they didn't oh right okay, okay. Um, the exciting things have happened to me since, but when I was a child, I did not get married yes um uh so i I think that the the question about the the gruesome reading gruesome things it probably did have. I would get very scared. I was terrified when I was little of a Spider-Man poster that I had, that I was convinced moved at night. Um, So I was, as much as I was into that stuff, I was also very terrified of it. And it probably wasn't always completely healthy. But
0: um, Yeah, I just, I mean, I I sound like such an old person. And I, you know, I used to have like, I I think part of it maybe is parenthood. Like I'm more sensitive to violence in movies and whatnot than i used to be because i think you have a lot of when you have a kid you always have like a certain level of fear that like something bad could happen and this is a tough world and what have i done bringing some innocent child into this and um and then you start to like you know you just don't want them to be like you actually you know you monitor you're like okay i don't want them to see this because i mean there's plenty of time for them to realize that like you know there's bad things happening in the world or people are Blowing things up or whatever, and uh, you know do you know what i 'm saying you, you understand what i 'm getting at, and I, I guess I just wonder if like if the, i mean there 's got to be some kind of toxic effect to ingesting violence, but yet at the same time, like you can 't understand violence unless you ingest it to a certain extent. you know the nature of it it can't you can 't just avoid it altogether and expect to have um any kind of understanding of it. So it's just an interesting question for me, like how to manage that particular aspect of my life and, and also like the life of my kid.
1: I, th- I think that, I think that that's true. I think though, that you have to uh, uh, perhaps there uh, probably different categories. I mean, certain things are, I would imagine, I, I mean, again, it's, I guess it's difficult for us to have this conversation because I don't have children. So I probably have never developed that worry myself. Um, but, you know, a lot of the stuff that I was reading growing up or watching on TV growing up was probably in extremely tame, obviously. I mean, if we're talking about a children's book of UFO sightings and English ghost stories, it's not particularly gruesome.
0: Oh, yeah. It's
1: not the same as, say, if if I was that same eight, 910 year old child now and my parents were away and then i decided to get on you know 4chan and see what i could find <laughs> and it's a different it it, it it probably two completely different types of of experience i mean one thing that that i can think of that you're saying that i relate to is when i was a kid and i don't i don't know how old you are i'm um, we're
0: the same age so i mean like generationally okay. i'm sure we saw and, and we had similar interests as kids so i'm like, you know, I'm thinking of like Nightmare on Elm Street, the, the Friday yeah. the 13th movies. You know, I saw all those movies when I was like 10 years old, 12 years old, you know, like um, that's, some, you know, that's... the
1: Well, see, and a lot of that stuff I didn't see until much later because I, I didn't have access to ways, for ways to see them. Um, so a lot of my ghoulish childhood stuff was limited to if it was in the library and I could check it out and read it, I would read it. Or if it was on, you know, channel nine on Sunday afternoon, whatever 70s, you know, cheapo 70s sci-fi movie. Um, The slasher movies came much later for me. The closest I had was when I was, at one point my family moved and our house was behind a drive-in theater. Um, And I couldn't see the screen, but at night you could hear the movies playing. And so I would stay up at night and I would listen to Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh, God.
0: <laughs> but I couldn't
1: see it. <laughs> so it's kind of like strange to like, you know, sit there in your bedroom at night with the window open, listening to, you know, blood-curdling screams and chainsaws. Um, and it's probably more terrifying not actually being able to see what what's happening. Um, yeah, that's but nice. what, you, what you're saying that, you know, it, what it made me think of is... When I was a child, when you were a child, I played G.I. Joe all the time, right? Um, I had all sorts of, you know, fake guns and –
0: Yeah, that, that's another – I mean that's, what,
1: that's just – Play funny. all that stuff. And I remember one of my uncles saying, oh, when he, – he didn't like the idea of when he had a kid, them playing with guns the way that my brother and I did. Um, and I remember at the time thinking, that's terrible. I mean this is so much fun. This
0: right. is awesome. Right. And
1: now I think back on that and I think, well, if I did have a child, there's no way I would buy my child you know, plastic assault rifle to right. play with. Right, right.
0: No, but that's like little boys, though. The thing about it that's so weird, and I don't have a, I don't have a son, but um, – is that you talk to people who do have little boys and it's like without any kind of provocation – it's not like parents are instructing – I mean, some parents do, but, but – that's a whole different ball yarn. But mo- most, you know, parents—they don- it's not like they're a- actively trying to place like toy assault rifles in their son's hands. But what happens is that I guess maybe the kids talk at school or something. But there's something kind of innate about it, which freaks me out about humanity. You know, there's something about guns and warfare that seems really kind of just. Uh, uh, like biologically coded into young males somehow. And I guess that's a, maybe that that's like a collective consciousness thing. I mean, we obviously have millennia of uh, experience. I, that sort of makes sense to me that it would just somehow be embedded in us. But if it is embedded, it's, I think it's worth uh, like unembedding. <laughs> um,
1: well, that's, that's true. And it's also what's sold to us. Right, um, right.
0: Well, that's, but I mean, sold to us in our, in our media. That's what I'm saying. It's like, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but it's something that I've become more aware of. And, um, I don't know. It's like, I I don't think I have it all sorted out, but it, it, it's definitely, um, I don't know. I guess it's, it's it's something of a problem. What kind of problem it is and how to address it is, is the, is the question.
1: Um, another thing that I'm reminded of is I've, I've done a couple readings now from the book and there's a scene in the book where a babysitter tells the main character when she's a child this very gruesome story. Um, and it's it's kind of a comic gruesome story, the way that a you know 15-year-old babysitter would tell the young girl that she's babysitting. It's like, oh, let me tell you, this is the worst story ever. And it's sort of like over the top and very kind of EC comics sort of thing.
0: Sure.
1: And I remember the first time I re- I just picked the parts that I wanted to read and I remember the first time I was doing the reading. I, uh were the first reading I had there were several children at. Um so I'm just kind of going along reading parts of my novel and um I get to that and as I'm going through I realize, "Oh, I'm about to read the scene that is like extremely <laughs> gruesome, maybe comically gruesome in some ways, but But gruesome, and what happened is, as I was reading it, because I noticed, like, the parents or the adults all kind of had this like ugh reaction. They were very creeped out by it, and the kids loved it. (laughs) (laughs) Right, (laughs) all of them, boys and girls. Yeah, and I've 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 read a couple times now, and any children who are in attendance (laughs) when I get to that part, they
0: love it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, my daughter's. I mean, she's four. She's like totally got she's got a sense for all that stuff, you know, scary stuff. And she's asking about death all the time. Like, I mean, as early as three, that just blows my mind. And I don't know if all kids are like that, but I'm constantly getting questions about that stuff. And it's just, you're just like, Oh God, <laughs> like the weight of the responsibility starts to make itself uh, like apparent in, in a really acute way. Not that it's not always there, but um, so anyhow, I, I'm curious to know, like just to shift to, to a new topic, I'm curious to know like what your experience has been um, you know, post-acquisition, uh, getting into the point where the book is is uh, in print and making its way out into the world, uh, particularly after working on it uh, for so long. You know, you're slaving away for 15 years on and off. Um, that's a long time to wait, and I know it's a, it's a lot of endurance. And so now to have the thing, um, you know, in hand and to see it make its way out and to be with a, a really well-respected indie, uh, like how has this part of it been? Has it been everything that you thought it would be, or have you been surprised by anything?
1: Um, well it's it's been amazing um, sort of all across the board uh, both the ease with which I found a publisher, the fact that I found a publisher that was that's just incredible and sympathetic and hardworking and really easy to get along with and have, you know, have only good things to say about $2 radio. Um, and then to see the book, um, go out into the world and things happen to it now. Uh, it's yeah. it's everything in, you know, in a way it, it I can't say it's everything I ever thought it would be because I can't say that I ever, had a solid idea of what it would be like. Part of that is just because I am uh, I am a pessimist (laughs) and I probably could only ever conceive if I did publish a novel that it would be just all the worst possible things would happen. That it would get acquired by a publisher but then end up never coming out or get lost in some sort of limbo or
0: and you thought I mean this is what you were expecting like when you say you're a pessimist like how how, how deep are we talking?
1: Well, pretty deep, pretty deep pessimism. <laughs> pretty, well, I mean, well, let me let me rephrase that. Obviously, it's some somehow it's uh, I think the deep pessimism with the like unfailing optimism, right? Because I guess you don't spend all that time writing I've always assumed that I would publish a novel.
0: Yeah, no, that I was going to say for for no real reason. (laughs) Spending spending fifteen years on a book is, (laughs) I think, an an inherently optimistic. Like writing a book, period, is an inherently optimistic activity somehow.
1: So it's it's that mixture of the like extreme egotism and optimism of, well, I'm going to write this novel and it'll get published, with the pessimism of, but who knows if people will like it or who knows if it'll go well or who knows. So. Um, but yeah, it's exceeded so far my, my expectations.
0: So, yeah, um, cause that's the thing too, is that I think a lot of writers, you know, debut or not that, de- you know, whether it's the debut novel or it's their fourth book or whatever it is, um, you know, some writers can really be plagued by, uh, the burden of like these really high expectations and, you know, their, their fantasy mind can start to spin out of control and you start to see like, well, you know, a hundred thousand copies have to sell and this, that, and the other. And it sounds like you had tempered expectations.
1: Well, t- tempered or or sort of non non-existent. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm thrilled that it, I'm thrilled that it's happening. That's the thing that I was starting to really worry would would not ever happen. Um, and, and it probably has also helped me that I don't really know, or at least did not prior to this happening in my life. Uh, did not know really anyone who had published a novel. Um, one of my roommates from college, Jim Higdon, uh, published a nonfiction uh, work called The Cornbread Mafia that's about uh, marijuana in Kentucky. Um, but other than that, um, I don't really have any friends that who've been through this. So I haven't had... I, I don't have anything really to measure myself against. Um, I don't have a sense of either... The great stories of, oh, yeah, I got an agent, and here's my huge advance that I got, and I'm sorry that I can't come to your birthday this weekend because I have to go on a yacht with Oprah. (laughs) Or the the horror stories of, oh, here are all the terrible things that can happen. I just sort of went off by myself, wrote for a while, and then now the book exists in a physical form. It kind of just happened quickly, and um, sort of at this point, everything is a, is a positive. And and, and
0: what about agent stuff? Like once this book got picked up by $2 and it's coming out with some good reviews, like, have you gotten any interest from agents?
1: No. Um, I mean, not, not yet. I've, I had one friend who recommended that I, uh, talk to her agent. Um, but I mean, I'm, do you want an agent? I know so I mean, little know, about it. It's,
0: it's, working, it's working out pretty well for you without one. So, I mean, like,
1: it's, it's going fine, and I'm a lawyer. I can read a contract. So Right.
0: So, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question. I mean, and I hate that because I know that like agents would probably cringe to hear it. I mean, they obviously make their living doing this. And yeah. um, a lot of agents do a lot of great things for authors, so I don't want to belittle that. But, I mean, like, like you said earlier with regard to the submissions process where you're going directly out to the publishers, and the publishers are getting back to you within four months and – Um, You know, the landscape has changed. And, you know, particularly with someone uh, who has a legal background and could look at a contract and feel confident in their appraisal of it or whatnot, uh, you know, it's possible to do this without an agent necessarily uh, being there as an intermediary. Um, But then again, you know, there are other like you know if you wanted to go to a big press or if you wanted to do certain things it would seem to be a necessity still so i mean is it something that you actively hope for or are you prepared to it sounds like you're just taking it one day at a time and just
1: i'm taking it one day at a time I, I i i know that it's i i i know that an agent uh is probably a beneficial thing to have and i think that they probably have it, it's like having an attorney it's maybe not something that it's always immediately apparent all of the things that say having an attorney is good for Um, at the same time I'm still very much in the early stages of of this the book has only been out two three weeks now Um, but just
0: but just so you know uh, having this book on $2 and having it reviewed the way that it's been reviewed where it's been reviewed yeah, you'd be able to get an agent, I think, fairly easily. That's just my two cents on it.
1: Uh, well, I I I appreciate that. I mean it I'm I'm still I'm still going through the um Like just as sort long of, as
0: well just as long as you know, your next book doesn't take you fifteen years. <laughs>
1: um, it actually it, it it won't. Um it it's I can assure you that it it won't. Um I'm hopefully well along, so Oh you are okay. Um, yeah,
0: I was going to ask you. I mean, and, and you know, I don't mean to and pl- trust me, like I'm I I can be a long uh a long uh, what's the word? I can take a while to write a book. Uh so there's no, there's no knocking 15 years especially in the context of all the other things that you've been up to, but I just know how the business is, you know, they want content and they want it, you know, they want new books to sell. But um it sounds like you were working on something else while you were working on uh Ancient Oceans or
1: Well, yeah, i I've worked on all sorts of different things all along the way and I'm, I'm a word hoarder. I don't think that I've deleted anything ever. So even things that I write that I think are not any good and that are in fact objectively not any good. I never know when down the road I might look at it again and see three good sentences that I like that inspire something that actually is good to come out of it. Um, so what's been nice is that, um, since $2 Radio picked up the novel, um, it's freed me up to go back to a lot of the other things that I've had in various states of dress and sort of fix them up and send them out. And I've had, uh, I guess, five or six short stories published this year already. Um, and so it's it's nice to be able to kind of start moving through other things and not have the sort of circling around which one of these things should I finish? What should I do? Where am I going with my life? I'll never amount to anything kind of stuff that a lot of writers do. Um, And then, yeah, I'm uh, most of the way through uh, a first draft of a second novel, which is, I edit a lot more than I write, so the first draft is really just kind of a err pile of words that I'll hopefully be able to craft into something that I really like.
0: Okay, yeah, because like you know, in terms of how you do it, you know, like, do you write? Re- it sounds like you write really messy first drafts. You let yourself just go.
1: Well, I, what I've the the process that I've developed that part of the fifteen years was just figuring out what works best for me. Um, I find that. I am not the kind of writer that can outline and then write that doesn't work for me at all that's that's the worst process for me um, my process is uh, the other day one of my friends mentioned that it my process sounded a lot more like making music um that I say when I'm walking somewhere when I'm driving get an idea like uh, and not an idea for a novel or an idea for a story, but just maybe one image, one sentence, three words that I like. Um, And then I will kind of come back to it again and again and add to it and take away from it. And then maybe I'll take three of those that I like and realize they complement each other well and then craft that into something. Um, So there's the process that I've ended up with, for the last several years and which was really what it took to help me finish Ancient Oceans was just letting go, trying not to control the process, um, just turning on writing and then using the editorial process to then kind of carve away the parts that were uninteresting or that I didn't like and getting to something that is uh, you know the interesting living part inside of it
0: so how many pages do you think like what's your ratio like if uh you know to pages written to the pages that actually wound up in the book
1: well, pages written to the pages that actually wound up in ancient oceans is i at one point the draft or or a draft is a generous word of the word document <laughs> that contained it was probably about four hundred thousand words oh wow, and the book ended up about fifty five thousand words wow okay. um, and that was just eight, everything I'd written in fifteen years all in all in one spot um,
0: and what was the kernel like what what do you I mean do you start uh, similarly? I mean, you mentioned getting lines or images in your head, but um, y- you know does it differ from project to project or do you usually start with an image do you get a title like what what is it?
1: I usually will start with an image um, most of both the novel and then a lot of the stories that I've published this year all have started with just a single image. Um, And then it goes out from there. Um, Either what happened after that image or how did we get to that image? Um, And again, I try to, I just don't think about it too much. I just kind of go back and, edit and add a sentence here and add a sentence there and something will trigger something else and then I'll get another idea and then it'll make me think of the third thing and then a couple hours go by and I've got a couple pages of a story and then I don't know how it's going to end until I get to a page and I think yep that's the end of the story that's that's where it all ends.
0: And then what about rejection? Because it sounds like, you know, like most writers, you know, they go through periods of insane amounts of rejection. For you, you finished this novel, you sent it out, and then it got picked up. Uh, did you ever have periods where you were submitting short stories, or did you try to publish earlier efforts or sections of this novel and fail? Or,
1: um, what? So my – I published – I had a really good run back around 2003, 2004, Um, I was writing, I was actually kind of in a, in, in a, in a place where I was sort of disappointed with the fact that I hadn't been able to get anything published. Um, I wrote mostly poetry for a long time and back in the nineties, the late nineties, early two thousands, we were still in the era of buying a copy of writer's market from the local bookstore, printing off of the poems. Typing up a cover letter, putting it in an envelope, mailing it out with a return, the self-addressed stamped envelope, um, and then waiting months and months and months and hoping, you know, to at least get the rejection back. <laughs> right. Um, so around two thousand three, two thousand four, I kind of uh, I, I had a good a good. I guess it was the early days of things being published on the internet as opposed to just. I hope I can get these poems and plowshares and um, had four or five stories or pieces um, published in various places. And then I thought, well, what? two things happened. Then I started law school and I thought, all right, well, I'm not having a good run. Let me return to writing a novel, um, which both those things together led to several years of, um, Not publishing, not even sending things out anymore. Um, And once I finished law school, I kind of got back into submitting things and just, you know, just like everybody else, rejection after rejection after rejection. But it took me, I think, a while. It wasn't really until about 2010, 2011 that I really hit on. the the mode of composition and editing that I have now that resulted in writing that I was, that I'm really proud of and really happy with.
0: And so, and just Uh, to to like, make sure we're clear on this, what is that mode?
1: Well, it's a, the mode is, um, writing quickly, writing from an initial inspiration, writing without planning, uh, improvising like music or, uh, or it's the way can would make records. They would jam in a castle for hours and then edit the tape down into an album. Okay. Um, so it's like that. And, um, rather than really trying to like write rigorously, tightly plotted things, um, being more, uh, Confident in being open in my writing, being open-ended in the writing, um, not having to control everything, um, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense. And then then the other question I had uh, relative to your education and uh, to the period you spent in law school where you weren't necessarily submitting stuff as much. Is I'm wondering if you look, you know, looking back, if you think that your uh, education, particularly in um, you know getting your advanced degree to become a lawyer, uh, you know, obviously that involves a lot of reading and writing. Like, do you think that that helped you at all in terms of how you do the the fiction work?
1: Well, yeah, I think it was. I think it was very beneficial. Um, Not necessarily because I was reading and writing a lot. Um, Law school, there's a lot of reading. There's not as much writing. And like a lot of people, I'm going to probably read a lot anyway. But what was great was um, getting experience in something outside of just being an English major who buys a lot of youth books and reads them, um, learning the law, reading cases. Uh, it's fascinating. There's, it, I think it, it, that's had a huge impact on my writing, Um and then being an attorney and going to court and sitting in court all day and seeing people's cases come and go both big and small and seeing the people standing outside the courthouse and talking. And, um, that's probably the best thing that I could have done for my writing. I, 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 it's, I certainly wouldn't recommend someone going to law school just for it. Um, but for me, it was probably better than, say, going and getting an MFA, um, because it was just exposure to things that I would have never been exposed to otherwise.
0: Yeah, well, yeah, it makes sense to me. And then um, this new book—I mean, it seems like you would be well primed to write some sort of legal thriller, like crime novel, something like that. I mean, like that, that's sort of the. Um, ancient Oceans, uh, you know, does that stuff. But, I mean, what's the next book about?
1: Well, I don't, I don't want to say a whole lot because I'm not finished with it yet. And I found that any time I talk too much about something that I'm not finished with yet, saying it out loud automatically makes it sound like the worst idea ever. Right. Plus, as someone who doesn't plan, I'm, I'm not necessarily sure where everything is going to end up. But the law um, has had a huge impact on on the writing and there's a lot of law now it's not say crime thriller i'm I'm not a criminal lawyer and i don't know that I could write a crime thriller even if even if I needed to but there's a lot it's going to law school taught me how much of our uh, how many nineteenth uh, century novels are about the law i mean it's you don't really appreciate how much of Dickens and Austin involves the law until, until you go to law school, or at least I didn't. I, I, I'm perhaps a little bit denser than most, but there's, there's a lot of that in what I do now. It's, whether it's estate planning or someone giving up their parental rights to a child or, uh, just the experience of someone, say, falling behind on payments to the music equipment store and having to go to court and get a judgment against you and then work out the payments with the collections attorney. You know, there's a lot of that stuff in what I write now. Um, So perhaps not uh, John Grisham thrilling, but thrilling in its own way in the sort of way that kind of everything that happens in life is exciting in its own way Uh, maybe it doesn't appear that way at first but everything's pretty exciting
0: well well, it's been uh, it's been great talking with you I congratulate you on the uh, on the publication of your debut and the success that it's had and I certainly wish you well on this new one
1: thank you very much it's been uh, nice talking to you too
0: okay folks there you have it that is David Connerly Nam. David connerly Nam His novel is called Ancient Oceans of Central Kentucky. That's available from $2 Radio. Go get it. You can find David uh, online at dcnam.com. He's also on the Twitter, where his handle is at dcnom. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always. For all the good music, be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget uh, to go get that app, the free, official Other People app. It's available wherever apps are available. You can... Uh, uh, stream the full archives. You can do all sorts of things. It's the easiest way to listen. You get it. It's on your device. New shows automatically upload. You can download episodes to listen to while you're offline, and then you can uh, sign up for premium, stream the full archives, all 300 some odd episodes. So go do that. The app itself is free. Uh, I should take a moment here to uh, clarify that I'm you know I'm not a complete idiot. I know that dinosaurs uh, were not uh, they're not technically lizards, even though. Uh, even though the name dinosaur means terrible lizard. I'm going by Wikipedia here. I had like a second thought after I started talking about, uh, you know, after I started talking about uh, dinosaurs being lizards, and uh, it turns out the dinosaurs are not lizards. They don't share... Where is it? Hang on a second. (laughs) I want to clarify this. I don't want to uh, be on the record. Okay, so the word dinosaur means terrible lizard. But the name is somewhat misleading as dinosaurs are not lizards. Instead, they represent a separate group of reptiles that, like many extinct forms, did not exhibit characteristics traditionally seen as reptilian, such as sprawling limb posture or uh, ectothermy. So, assuming Wikipedia is accurate, dinosaurs uh, are not lizards, even though the word dinosaur means terrible lizard. It's because they want to make shit confusing. So uh, what else? I don't know. It's fall. Let fall be upon us. I'm going to try not to watch too much football. Going back to uh, the Steve Almond episode. That continues to torture me. Did you hear that one? Seems like people just don't care. People won't get in. You know, people won't be affected by it. They just want their football. They want their violence. Please remember that uh, Salvador Dali once gave a lecture in London while wearing a diving helmet and nearly suffocated, and that Robert Frost had a daughter who went insane and one of his sons committed suicide. That is it for now. Ah, That's a (laughs) bleak. Sorry I even said that. Uh, That's it for now. Thanks again to David Connolly Nam. Go get his novel. Thanks to you guys for listening. I appreciate it. And uh, I'll be back soon. I shall return. And, uh, you know dinosaurs were not lizards what else do I say Brontosauri Triceratops just walk when you're walking around today just look around and try to imagine a giant lizard where you stand or, or just try to imagine that uh, you know you're underwater there was an ancient ocean where you currently stand and uh, that ancient ocean assuming things continue in the way that they uh, appear to be going uh, may, may well return How's that for a nice thought?